Leviticus chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. Let me pray for us before we read. Let's pray together. Father, we we need your grace uh, right now. I need your grace right now. Uh, I need your strength to teach truth, and we need your grace to hear it. Uh, We need your Holy Spirit, Father, to work in our hearts, to humble us before you, before your word. We need you, Father, to make us people who look to you rather than to ourselves for life and for health and for strength and for wisdom. Father, be with us. Pour out your spirit in our midst, we pray right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Leviticus 6, beginning with verse 8. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth on the altar all night until the morning, and the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment and put his linen undergarment on his body, and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has reduced the burnt offering on the altar and put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garment and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. And this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall offer it before the Lord in front of the altar. One shall take from it a handful of the fine flour of the grain offering and its oil and all the frankincense that is on the grain offering, and burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the rest of it Aaron and his sons shall eat. It shall be eaten unleavened in a holy place. In the court of the tent of meeting they shall eat it. It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their portion of my food offerings. It is a thing most holy, like the sin offering and the grain offering. Every male among the children of Aaron may eat of it as decreed forever throughout your generations from the Lord's food offerings. Whoever touches them shall become holy. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This is the offering that Aaron and his son shall offer to the Lord on the day when he is anointed, a tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a regular grain offering, half of it in the morning and half in the evening. It shall be made with oil on a griddle. Shall bring it well mixed in baked pieces like a grain offering and offer it for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The priest from among Aaron's sons who is anointed to succeed him shall offer it to the Lord as decreed forever. The whole of it shall be burned. Every grain offering of a priest shall be wholly burned. It shall not be eaten. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten in the court of the tent of meeting. Whoever touches its flesh shall be holy, and when any of its blood is splashed on a garment, you shall wash that on which it was splashed in a holy place. The earthenware vessel in which it is boiled shall be broken, but if it is boiled in a bronze vessel, that shall be scoured and rinsed in water. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It is most holy." But no sin offering shall be eaten from which any blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place. It shall be burned up with fire. This is the law of the guilt offering. It is most holy. 
In the place where they kill the burnt offering, they shall kill the guilt offering, and its blood shall be thrown against the sides of the altar, and all its fat shall be offered. The fat tail, the fat that covers the entrails, the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that shall that he shall remove with the kidneys. The priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. It is a guilt offering. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It shall be eaten in a holy place. It is most holy. The guilt offering is just like the sin offering. There is one law for them. The priest who makes atonement with it shall have it, and the priest who offers any man's burnt offering shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering that he has offered. And every grain offering baked in the oven and all that is prepared on a pan or a griddle shall belong to the priest who offers it. And every grain offering mixed with oil or dry shall be shared equally among all the sons of Aaron. This is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings that one may offer to the Lord. If he offers it with, for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the thanksgiving sacrifice unleavened loaves mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and loaves of fine flour well mixed with oil. With the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving, he shall bring his offering with loaves of leavened bread. From it he shall offer one loaf from each offering as a gift to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who throws the blood of the peace offerings. And the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. But if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow offering or a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice, and on the next day what remains of it shall be eaten. But what remains of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned up with fire. If any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering is eaten on the third day, he who offers it shall not be accepted, neither shall it be credited to him. It is tainted, and he who eats of it shall bear his iniquity. Flesh that touches any unclean thing shall not be eaten. It shall be burned up with fire. All who are clean may eat flesh, but the person who eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings while an uncleanness is on him, that person shall be cut off from his people. And if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether human uncleanness or an unclean beast or an unclean detestable creature, and then eats some flesh from the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings, that person shall be cut off from his people. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, You shall eat no fat or ox, of ox or sheep or goat. The fat of an animal that dies of itself and the fat of one that is torn by beasts may be put to any other use, but on no account shall you eat it. For every person who eats of the fat of the animal of which a food offering may be made to the Lord shall be cut off from his people. Moreover, you shall eat no blood whatever, whether of fowl or of animal, in any of your dwelling places. Whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever offers the sacrifice of his peace offerings to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offerings. His own hands shall bring the Lord's food offerings. He shall bring the fat of the breast, that the breast may be waved as a wave offering before the Lord. For he shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be for Aaron and his sons. And the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a contribution from the sacrifice of your peace offerings. Whoever among the sons of Aaron offers the blood of the peace offerings and the fat shall have the right thigh for a portion. For the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, I have given for the people, from the people of Israel out of the sacrifices of their peace offerings, and have given them to Aaron the priest and to his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel. This is the portion of Aaron and his sons from the Lord's food offerings, from the day they were presented to serve as priests of the Lord. The Lord commanded this to be given to them by the people of Israel from the day that he anointed them. It is a perpetual due throughout their generations. 
This is the law of the burnt offering, of the grain offering, of the sin offering, of the guilt offering, of the ordination offering, and of the peace offering, which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai on the day that he commanded the people of Israel to bring their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. I don't know why I smile every time I finish the scripture reading recently. If you haven't been with us, uh, we've been working through the book of Leviticus. I don't know how many weeks this is now, but we've uh, been working through them a chapter at a time. Uh, we've worked through uh, the sacrifices, many of the sacrifices already. And we've made it now to chapters 6 and 7, which are sort of a concluding summary of the sacrifices in the book of Leviticus. Does your life have a sense of the holiness of God? Does a sense of God's holiness pervade your life? Now you might wonder, okay, what does that mean? Um, what does that mean, to have a sense of the holiness of God pervade my life? I mean, when people came into contact with the holiness of God in the Old Testament, right, the inevitable result was terror. Uh, when, when the people of Israel heard God speak uh, the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai, uh, we, we read there, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and, and uh, the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Or uh, you may remember Isaiah had a vision of the Lord sitting on his throne and the angels are surrounding him, each with six wings. And they covered their faces and their feet to shield them, for, uh, to shield their sight from God's holiness and to shield their creatureliness from God's sight. And they called out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory and the earth shook. And God's temple was filled with smoke. And Isaiah cries out, woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now you may think, well, that was the Old Testament. But then we turn to the book of Revelation, and when John has a vision of Jesus in the book of Revelation, John falls at Jesus' feet as though he were dead. Does a sense of the holiness of God pervade your life? Now, again, you might ask, well, okay, what do you mean? I can't, I can't live life falling on the ground as if dead, right? Not all the time, anyway. Uh, so, so what does it mean for a sense of God's holiness to pervade my life? Well, here's uh, Peter's answer in the New Testament. We read it earlier in 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter says this. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. A consciousness of God's holiness should lead to our own holiness. Being aware of God's holiness should cause us to pursue holiness in our own lives. Of course, that just leads to another question, doesn't it? Because what does holiness look like? What does that mean? And that is what uh, this passage in Leviticus, and really much of the rest of Leviticus, is going to talk about. What does holiness look like? 
And yet before we begin looking at this passage this morning in Leviticus 6 and applying it to our lives, we need to note uh, one very important New Testament teaching that helps us bridge the gap between Leviticus and today. And that's the teaching that we, the church, the people of God, are a kingdom of priests. This is mentioned multiple places in the New Testament. It's mentioned also in 1 Peter chapter 2. It says we are a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices to our God. Uh, Revelation 5 says Christ ransomed people for God and made them a kingdom and priests to our God. You see, whereas in the Old Testament uh, there was a special class of priests who had uh, a unique status among God's people, the New Testament teaches that the priesthood of all believers... All of us have the same access to God's throne of grace. What we're going to do this morning, then, is look at these priestly laws in Leviticus 6 and 7. And and though we are not under the Old Covenant law, we can ask, what do these laws teach us about being priests of God now in the New Covenant? And our outline, uh, you can see it in the back of your bulletin, I think. It's there. is uh, four things the priests had to do to live holy lives as God's holy people. One is keep the commandments. Two is fuel the fire. Three is distinguish the holy from the common. And four is separate the holy from the unclean. Those are the four things we're going to talk about this morning. Strange as they may sound. Uh, First, keep the commandments. Now our passage begins with these words in Leviticus 6 verse 8. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. And already a couple things actually stick out, believe it or not. Uh, The first is that the first five plus chapters of Leviticus were actually addressed not to Aaron and his sons, uh, but to the people of Israel in general. And now there's this shift in uh, the addressee of the book. Um, the, the, the shift, God is now speaking specifically to the priests. And, and that may not seem significant, but it actually, we'll see in a moment, is, is kind of important. And second, in verse 9, there are two words that appear for the first time here in Leviticus. Two seemingly common words, the word command and the word law. The words command and law are, are not in the first five chapters of Leviticus, which again seems strange to us because it feels like we've been reading laws after law after law after law. But those two words aren't there. And uh, why are those two things significant? The first five chapters of Leviticus are laying out for the everyday Israelite how they were to bring the sacrifices, what they were to bring, uh, what, what they were to do once they brought the offering, and so on. But now the focus is, is different The focus is the priest's role, and uh, particularly we see the priest's responsibility to maintain holiness in the sacrificial system. It was the priest's job to make sure that everything was done right, to be conscious of the holiness of God and how that came to bear on worship and life. And uh, the very first part of that, before we even look at the particulars as we go through the chapter, was to obey God's commandments and to keep his laws. The priest had to be especially aware of God's commandments and his laws. Now, uh, as Christians who love God's grace, uh, we tend to get a bit squeamish when people begin to talk about the law. We say things like, well, we're not under the law, we're under grace. And uh, Jesus obeyed the law perfectly on our behalf. Jesus died to pay the penalty of our, uh, for our transgression of the law. And therefore, Jesus, by both his obedience to the law and by his death on the cross, has fulfilled the whole law for us. 
What more is there to do? And of course, all of that is true. But uh, the answer to the question, what more is there for us to do, is we are to obey the law. Um, we're not to obey to gain God's favor. We're, we're not to obey as a bargaining tool with God. We're not to obey to boast in our obedience. Uh, but we obey because we love Jesus. Uh, at least that's what Jesus says, right? You may remember Jesus' words in John 14 where Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And again, he says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. In fact, the, the Great Commission, which we so often rightly think of as a command to go and preach the gospel, the Great Commission actually says, go teach people to obey all that I have commanded them. Well, why, why is this the case, right? Why, why is it that we are now to obey the law? After all that Jesus has done for us, and he's fulfilled it for us, he's paid the penalty, why do we have to now obey it? Well, the law is really two things. The law is a revelation of God's character, and the law is instruction on how to love well. That's what the law is, instruction on how to love well. Jesus said a summary of the law was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what the law is about. And so if the law is instruction on how to love, to keep the law is what it looks like to love. The fact that we are no longer under the law but under grace doesn't mean we are free from the obligation to love. Um, it means two things, really. On the one hand, it means we're, we're free from the old covenant laws. Uh, they were given for a purpose uh, to teach Israel and to teach us certain things about God and their relationship to him, to point us to Christ. And now that Christ has come, those specific laws have served their purpose. We're no longer under the law, the law of Moses, but we are under the grace of Christ. But two, uh, being free from the law also means we're free from the penalty of God's law. Uh, Jesus suffered the full wrath of the Father for us in the cross. The penalty for all of our disobedience has been paid. So we're free from the Mosaic legislation, and we are free from the penalty of God's law. But we really can never and should never want to be free from the obligation to love. I mean, in fact, the goal of our redemption in Christ, right, is to be conformed to the image of Christ, to be renewed in the image of God, that we would become as loving as God is. That's what it means to be holy as God is holy. It means to love as God loves. In fact, the high point of Leviticus, and, and we'll see this as we move on, the high point of Leviticus' teaching on holiness is the command in Leviticus uh, 19 to love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul, in his great letter about our freedom from the law, the letter of Galatians, quotes Leviticus. And he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Freedom from the Mosaic law. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, what, did, what does being aware of God's holiness look like? It, it means being holy as God is holy. What does that look like? It looks like obedience to God's law, which is a revelation of God's character and instruction on how to love well. Being holy as God is holy means loving as God loves. And if you want to love well and be like Jesus, then obey God's law. That's the blueprint. 
for loving well and being like Jesus. Well, we're, we're looking at four things the priests did because uh, of their consciousness of God's holiness, four practical duties uh, of holiness in the temple, and therefore four practical things that, that we might do as God's priests if we're going to live holy lives as his holy people. The first is to keep Christ's commandments. And the second, though, is to fuel the fire. Uh, as we move into the chapter, we come to instructions on sacrifices. We've, uh, we've seen these already. But these instructions are, are shorter, believe it or not, they're shorter, and they have a different emphasis. Uh, the first offering mentioned here is the burnt offering in verse 9 again. Verse 9 says, Command Aaron and his son, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth of the altar all night until the morning, and the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. Now, uh, two things stand out, uh, and they really go hand in hand. The first is in these laws about the burnt offering, which go from verse 9 to verse 13. Five times we're told that the fire on the altar is to be kept burning all the time. So we're told it in verse 9, which I just read. We're told it in verse 12. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. And then again in verse 13, it says, Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. So that's one thing to notice here that's different. That we're told five times that fire on the altar should be kept burning again and again continually. And then second, the priests are to offer a burnt offering every morning and every night. Uh, evening is mentioned in verse 9. Morning is mentioned in verse 12. And uh, it, it, it may be a little unclear here, but uh, Exodus 29 actually makes it very clear that there is to be a regular, perpetual burnt offering every morning and every night on the altar. So you have a perpetual offering on a perpetual fire. What, what's the point? Well, uh, first think about the significance of, of offerings in general, right? The kinds of things that were offered were sheep and goats and grain and wine and oil. Right? And, and um, one theologian, Gerhardus Voss, said, uh, the sacrifice must be taken from what constitutes the sustenance of life, sustenance of the life of the offerer and from what forms the product of his life. So the sustenance and the product, the produce. Together, Voss says, they characterize sacrifice as the gift of life to God. Right? Our, that which sustains us and that which we produce, we offer up to him. It's the gift of our lives to God. So sacrifice is the giving over of one's life to God. Saying, God, here's my life. It's yours. Right? Take it. And uh, remember then also the significance of the burnt offering in particular. The whole burnt offering or the ascension offering symbolized wholeheartedly offering oneself up to God. Because the whole animal in this offering, representing the worshiper, the whole animal was given over to God through fire. So, and the fire, symbolizing God's holiness, transformed the offering into a pleasing aroma. You remember the smoke went up from the whole burnt offering and it was a pleasing aroma to God. So the Israelite priests are to perpetually fuel this fire, which actually we'll see in chapter 8 was started by God himself. So they perpetually fuel this divine fire as a symbol of God's enduring, transforming holiness. And then they are to offer up perpetually, every morning and every evening, offer up themselves to God for him to transform them by fire. Now, just, just think about the symbolism here, right? Offering ourselves wholly to God every morning, every evening, that he might transform you into a pleasing aroma. That's the imagery. That God might work in you that which is pleasing in his sight. 
In fact, Hebrews 13 says, uh, It is God who equips you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus. Or Philippians 2 says, It is for God, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, we offer ourselves to God that he might transform us into a pleasing aroma. Of course, there's more. The Israelites not only offered themselves in the, in the uh, offerings, but they had to feed the fire that transforms the sacrifice. Now, you might think, okay, this has got to be where the analogy breaks down. Uh, but actually, it, it doesn't. Um, think about this. How does God transform us today so that we become a, a self-sacrificial people? I mean, we are, at least I am naturally selfish and not self-giving, not to God or to people. How does God change us? Well, by the indwelling of the Spirit, who is actually symbolized by fire in the New Testament. So the transforming fire of the Spirit is actually in God's people, now under the New Covenant. Okay, but we don't really keep the Spirit burning, right? I mean, that's kind of a stretch. God's Spirit is there independent of what we do. Well, sort of. Uh, think about these verses in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, where we're commanded, be filled with the Spirit. It's a command, an imperative, right? Be filled with the Spirit. Or uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19, which says, do not quench the Spirit. Okay, what kinds of things do you quench? You quench fire. And Paul is encouraging uh, the Thessalonians, do not quench the Holy Spirit's work in your life. Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now, on the one hand, you know, can we diminish the Holy Spirit in any way? Well, of course not. Right? No, he is God. Right? We cannot diminish his power. Uh, but, according to the scriptures, we can quench the Spirit's work in our lives by our hard-heartedness. And we can, on the other hand, be filled with the Spirit. How does that happen? Actually, um, Colossians has a parallel passage to Ephesians, and where Ephesians says, be filled with the Spirit, Colossians says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How do we feed the Spirit's work in our lives? By, by taking in the word of Christ, by feeding ourselves on Scripture, to change the analogy a little bit, right? See, Scripture is what the Spirit uses to then transform us into the image of Christ, and so we need to fuel the, the fire of God's spirit, so to speak, by feeding on the word of God and offering ourselves up afresh to God every day to serve him anew, to offer our lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. So how do we live holy lives as God's holy priests? Well, we keep Christ's commandments. We fuel the fire of the spirit's work in our lives and we distinguish, distinguish the holy from the common. Now, uh, what much of this chapter is about is who is to eat what, right? So the, the chapter, it, it tells us who is to eat what portion of the grain offering and where they're to eat it, uh, who is to eat what portion of the sin offering and where they're to eat it, who is to eat what portion of the guilt offering and where they're to eat it, who is to eat what portion of the peace offering. You, you get the point, right? That over and over and over again, this chapter talks about who is to eat what and where. And two times, in, uh, actually, in the ESV, we're told about various food offerings. In verses, uh, chapter 6, verse 18 and 27, whatever touches them shall become holy. 
that was uh, yeah, verse 18. Whatever touches them shall become holy. And, and a, 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 a different translation that some have offered is that uh, whoever touches them must be holy. Right? So again, it would be emphasizing the a condition, not the result, right? The condition for touching the food offering, not the result. Now, why, why might that be a better translation? Well, because in Haggai, the book of Haggai, we find these verses. Um, Haggai says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, No. Right? So uh, holy food, according to the priests in Haggai's day, did not communicate holiness. Now, either they just didn't read their Bibles well enough or were mistranslating right, uh, Leviticus here. So a, a better translation, maybe, is to translate it as a condition, not as a result. Whoever touches the food must be holy. And, of course, that would be consistent with everything else this chapter keeps saying again and again and again. There's also, though, this odd verse about vessels in uh, chapter 6, verse 28. The holy food was at times, part of the sacrificial meat, was boiled in a pot. And uh, we're told if a pot is an earthenware vessel, it had to be broken. But if it was bronze, it only had to be scoured. Why? Right? Sometimes we read these things and we just kind of shake our heads going, what in the world was going on here? You know, we're so distant from that culture. It's, uh, it's odd, confusing to us. Uh, so far, but there, there's actually a reason for this, right? A clay pot was porous. Uh, some of the juices from the holy food, from the sacrificial meat, would have sunk into that pot, and uh, which means if someone else then used that pot, they might kind of accidentally eat holy food. And so the pot had to be destroyed. So there was no accidental eating of holy food. A bronze pot, on the other hand, not porous, could be cleaned. And there was no danger of someone accidentally eating the holy food. So the emphasis, again and again and again, in this chapter, all of these little odd details here and there, is that the priests and the priests alone ate food from the sacrifices. The question is, why? Right? What's the big deal? Before we get to that, I have a, a, a kind of a side note about this. Paul mentions this in the New Testament. He mentions priests eating of the sacrifices in the New Testament in a way that's actually a little bit unexpected. And he, he mentions it at least twice. <clears throat> in uh, Philippians, Paul talks about the gifts that the Philippians had given uh, for the needs of the ministry, of Paul's ministry. Paul says this, Philippians 4.18, he says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Their gifts uh, to Paul for his ministry are compared to the food offerings in the Old Testament that we're reading about right now. And it's interesting that Paul talks about uh, their gifts for his ministry as a kind of sacrifice because one thing that's emphasized in this chapter, again and again and again, right, is that the priests got their food from the sacrifices. Now, on the one hand, we've already said this, the New Testament teaches the priesthood of all believers, right? Paul was not uniquely a priest above and beyond anyone else. 
But Paul actually applies, in uh, this qualified way, he applies priestly language to gospel ministers. In at least one passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm not going to read the whole section. You can read it uh, for yourself later on, verses 1 through 14. But I'll just read the, the punchline, so to speak. The end of it is this. In verse 13, Paul says, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. You know, there, there are actually people out there who teach that it's wrong to get paid for gospel ministry. Maybe you've heard some of those arguments before. In fact, certain cults, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons in particular, teach this. Um, but Paul, though he himself was not paid ultimately for his work, he argues against that. And he makes his argument in part by comparing the minister of the gospel to the priest in the temple. The temple priests made their living by serving at the temple day after day after day. Each week, you bring an offering, and part of that goes to pay my salary. Because Paul says, uh, like the priests in the temple, those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, though Paul does apply these concepts in this way in the New Testament, that's not the main thing that we should get from this idea. Priests and priests alone in the Old Covenant ate from the sacrifices, all except the peace offering. The priests and priests alone ate from the sacrifices. And the question is, why? What's the, the point? Um, what, what's the point about who eats what? What difference does it make? Um, only the holy people, the priests, could eat the holy food. Only in a holy place, in the court of the tabernacle, could the priests eat the holy food. The common people, the Israelites, were not allowed to eat the holy food. And the point is, at least in part, that the holy and the common must be distinguished. Okay, why? Why, why these categories? It, this gets at really one of the fundamental teachings of Leviticus. God is holy. That means God is set apart. Everything belongs to God on the one hand, but some things are holy. Some things he claims as uniquely his. So in Exodus 19, God says to Israel, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Notice everything belongs to God, but Israel is unique, his treasured possession, his holy nation. God is holy. Everything that uniquely belongs to God is holy. And maintaining this distinction between the holy and the common was one of the key roles of the priests. And why is that important? I mean, there are a number of reasons. But one is, if, if you lose the category of holiness, you lose the holiness of God. Um, if there's no such thing as holiness, if everything is treated the same, if there's no such thing as holiness, then God, not even God is holy. And if not, even God is holy, then God is just like us. And if God is just like us, then God is finite and fallible, limited and able to make mistakes. And if God is finite and fallible, well, then God is not fully trustworthy. Because even if he wants to keep his word, he may not. And if he's fallible, he's, he's sinful, so maybe he's lying to us anyway. If God is finite and fallible, God cannot guarantee our salvation 
God is finite and fallible. Ultimately, God is not worthy of our worship. If God is not holy, he's, he's really not God at all. Once we lose the concept of holiness, we're actually on our way to losing our belief in the true God. Now, when, I, when we think about this concept of holiness, though, there are only two places I can think of that where we regularly use this word holy. I mean, how often do you use the word holy, really? Um, actually, we use it in a negative way sometimes. We talk about people who are holier than thou, right? Um, and there we're talking about people who, who think they're better than everybody else. Um, that's obviously a negative concept of holiness, <laughs> um, but it's not the biblical concept of holiness. We use the word holy in only two ways that I can think of. Um, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, right? We use the phrase the Holy Spirit all the time in the church. Uh, the Holy Spirit is not just another spirit. He is God. He is unique. He's set apart. He's different. Holy Spirit. And we talk about the Holy Bible. And even if we don't actually call it the Holy Bible most of the time anymore, it says it on the front. Holy Bible, right? Um, the Holy Bible is not just another book. It's God's book. It's God's word. It's unique. It's set apart. It's different. I actually think we need to reclaim and extend this concept of holiness, extend it to its biblical parameters. Um, there are, so for example, right, there are lots of gatherings in life, lots of reasons people get together, right? We get together to watch football, to play board games, to take a class. People gather together for all kinds of reasons. But this is a holy gathering, right? This right here is a holy gathering. It's what Leviticus will call a holy convocation. Which is just a fancy word for gathering. It's holy because this gathering has been set apart for God in a unique way. We have come, we have gathered together to worship our God, to hear from his word, right? This is a holy gathering. Uh, there are lots of meals, right? Uh, most of us in this room probably eat three meals a day, more if we get peckish, right? But, but we are about to eat the Lord's Supper, now, by calling it the Lord's Supper, we are saying it is different from other meals. It's set apart. It's holy. It uniquely belongs to him. There are seven days in a week, right? But, but one day of the week, the Bible and the early church called the Lord's Day. That means that day was set apart. It is distinct. It is holy. It's different from every other day. It's the Lord's Day. Now, we can say every day is the Lord's Day. That's true, right? The whole earth belongs to God, but some things he claims uniquely for his own. Like the people of Israel in the Old Testament, like the church in the New Testament. We are called a holy people. And the Bible tells us that, right? We are a holy people. In fact, the word the New Testament often uses for God's people is saints, which means holy ones. You are a saint. That's why Christ came. Right? That the holy God took on common humanity that common people might be made holy. You are a saint because you have been set apart by God for God. Saints are not super Christians. Right? I'm not calling you a saint because you did something nice to me or something like that. No, you, you're a saint a, a, a saint or a holy one is a status that we have by grace. You are set apart for God. You are a saint. You are a holy one. You are his treasured possession. You are special to God. 
to belong to his son Jesus. You see, we need to regain this, this proper sense of the holy so we can understand, on the one hand, the uniqueness of God and the special status that we have as his people. That we've been set apart. That we uniquely belong to him. You know, there's one passage about holiness in, in the New Testament that I think is especially worth thinking about um, mulling over. First uh, Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. It, it, teaches, it teaches that there are people... People out there who will forbid marriage, people out there who forbid eating certain foods. But, Paul goes on to say in 1 Timothy, everything created by God is good. Okay, Everything is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For, this is the odd part, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Everything is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. And here's what I think this passage is saying. Every good thing right, is created by God. Right? Everything created by God is good. And it can become holy as we devote it to God in accordance with his word. And things are not intrinsically holy, even if they're good. Right? See, there's a, there's a distinction here that's being made. Uh, but they become holy as we set them apart and use them for God's purposes. Just as God has set us apart for his purposes of glorifying his holy name. We are a holy people. We've been set apart for a specific purpose to glorify our God. So, so do, you, do you understand, maybe at least begin to understand, right? God is holy. It, the world is common. Right? The world is common, everyday, ordinary. God is separate from that. He's holy. The world is common. It's not bad. Right? Common's not bad. It's good. God made it. But it's not holy either. It's, it's just common. But we have been made a holy people who have a unique relationship to our Father in heaven. A unique a right to approach him as his priests. And that means that our lives can no longer find their goal in this world. Because we've been called out and set apart for something more. You are God's holy people. Be holy as God is holy. Okay, how do we live holy lives as God's holy priests? We, we keep Christ's commandments. We fuel the fire of the Spirit's work in our hearts by feeding on the word of God. We distinguish the holy from the common. We understand these categories. What is holy and what is common? And then four, we separate the holy from the unclean. And as we read through this chapter, we eventually get to the laws about the peace offering. Now, the peace offering symbolized the whole blessedness of being God's people, right? Rejoicing in the abundance of God, eating uh, of the sacrificial meat and enjoying God's presence. So even the common people got to eat of this offering. Every Israelite got to partake of the peace offering. Of course, that made it extra complicated for the uh, priests, right? When it was only the priests eating, that the priests know what to do, right? But the common people, they might become, they might come unclean. And, uh, and uncleanness, though it is not sin in the Old Covenant, it represented sin, and sin caused brokenness in the world. So uncleanness in the Old Testament represented sin and the brokenness that sin has brought into the world. And so if you look at verses 19 to 21 of chapter 7, verses 19 through 21 talk about the fact that if anyone eats while they are unclean, they will be cut off from God's people. 
That's the language that's used. Cut off from God's people. Now, uh, scholars debate what this phrase, cut off from God's people, means. Does it mean run out to the Israelite community, right? If you eat while you're unclean, you're run off. Uh, does it mean put to death, permanently cut off from God's people? Does it mean, some think that it will mean the person will die childless, right? God will punish them and they'll be cut off sort of from the line of God's people. Or does it mean, uh, some say, that he will not be gathered to his people after death, which was uh, an, an Israelite way of talking about what happens when you die. You're gathered to your people. Some say it's the Israelite way of talking about heaven. You're gathered to your people after death. Whatever this phrase means, cut off from his people, most believe it is a punishment that God himself inflicts rather than the community because it deals with a rebellion that is often hidden from the community. I mean, how can I know if you've accidentally touched some unclean thing earlier today? I can't know that. And so only God knows if you're unclean and you're coming and partaking of the holy things. Well, what's, what's the point? Uh, well, again, the unclean and the holy should not come into contact. It was bad enough if you profane something holy, that means to treat it as if it were common. But it's even worse to pollute it, right? to defile it, to take the holy and make it unclean. God is a God of purity and perfection and goodness and life. And unclean stood for all that was impure and broken and sinful and dead. The two could not, should not ever come into contact. But, of course, cleansing was always available for God's people. So the, the, these passages talk about eating something while you're unclean, but cleansing was available for every Israelite. They could have been cleansed. So for someone to eat while they were unclean was really an act of stubbornness. They could have been cleansed or at least waited until they were clean, but instead they chose to pollute God's holy things. And hence the seriousness of the punishment being cut off from God's people. Okay, well... What does that have to do with us, right? We're not under those Mosaic laws. We said that earlier. Uh, we don't have to follow those particular rules about touching this animal or not touching that animal or not touching this unclean thing or becoming unclean if we come in contact with a dead body or any of these things, right? So, so what does this have to do with us? Well, we could ask the question a little bit differently. In the New Testament, what is unclean? How even might we approach uh, holy things while an uncleanness is on us? What, what would that even mean? What would that even look like? Well, when you turn the page to the New Testament, the unclean, the impure, sort of the symbolism has dropped away. And what is declared unclean is sin. Jesus says uncleanness comes not from outside, but from in our hearts. And so we need our hearts cleansed. By faith. And the New Testament is full of this language. We've talked about it a number of times and we'll keep talking about it as we move through Leviticus. Uh, but just start noticing the language of cleansing and impurity and purification in the New Testament. It's actually all over the place. It's our hearts, our souls, our consciences that are cleansed by faith through the word from impurity and unrighteousness according to the New Testament. And this cleansing, again, is readily available to all. In Acts chapter 15, verse 9, Peter says, God makes no distinction, but will cleanse the hearts, cleanse the hearts of anyone, Jew or Greek, doesn't matter your ethnicity, doesn't matter your background, God will cleanse the hearts, cleanse the hearts of anyone if they turn to Jesus and believe in him. 
First John says, if we openly acknowledge and confess our sins, the blood of Jesus cleanses our sin. Okay, so uncleanness comes from within. It's sinful, rebelliousness. Uh, but we can be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Okay, cleansing is available. What would it look like then for the holy and the unclean to come into contact today? What would that mean? Well, here's, here's the best I can think of, and it actually relates to, to these verses. Um, it would look like hypocrisy. Right? I think, think about it, right? When we hide sin in our hearts and we think no one knows, just like here, no one knew the person was unclean when they came to eat the holy foods, right? When we hide sin in our hearts and think no one knows and we keep going through the religious motions, doing religious things, thinking that no one will notice, we could be cleansed, right? You could just be cleansed of that hypocrisy. Cleansing is available right here, right now. This is why Jesus came. He came as our great high priest to offer up the sacrifice of himself, to shed his blood, to cleanse us of our sin. If you believe in Jesus and confess your sins, God will cleanse you from all unrighteousness right now. But if you hide sin in your heart and then go through the motions of religion, Leviticus says, you will be cut off from your people. Is it any wonder that Jesus reserved his harshest rebuke for the religious leaders who cleansed, that's the language, right? Who cleansed the outside of the cup. While they were inside, they were full of dead men's bones, uncleanness. Right? There's nothing more unclean than, than a dead body under the Old Covenant. And Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, your hearts are full of dead men's bones. Your hearts are unclean. No, if we want to live holy lives as God's priests, we must, we must separate the holy from the unclean. Now, that doesn't mean we have to be perfect. We, we can't be, right? We are, we are messed up. We're sinful. We're fallen. We're broken. But it does mean we come to God in humility, seeking to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus, that he would prepare us to stand in God's presence. Not because we've done things right, but because we've been cleansed by his blood. If we want to live holy lives, what does that look like? It looks like striving to keep God's commandments, to be holy as he is holy, to love as he loves. It looks like humbly relying on the power of the Spirit to transform us and make our lives a pleasing sacrifice to God. It looks like distinguishing the holy from the common, remembering that we are a holy people set apart to glorify God's holy name. And it looks like humbly asking for Jesus to cleanse our hearts by faith that we might have the right to approach the throne of grace and commune with our holy God. Let's pray. Our Father, these things are mysterious to me, at least. Your holiness is uh, incomprehensible, and the implications for that are, are limitless. And yet we do know that we, we long to commune with you, our holy God, and so we pray that you, would, that you would make us holy. We thank you for Jesus and his blood, which has given us a holy status. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who is transforming us inwardly to make us a holy people. We thank you for the blood of Jesus which cleanses us of impurity. We pray, Father, that you would help us to draw near to you in faith. We pray that you would work in our hearts so that we would, as we're conformed to your image, we would keep your law, that we would love you in light of your great love for us. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.